Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of this podcast for piano teachers. Today, I welcome you with some high energy music, the second movement of Beethoven's Sonata, Opus 31, number three. I want to begin by thanking the many listeners in nine countries who listened to episode one and thank you for the tremendous positive feedback I've received. I hope everyone is well as we continue our journey through this pandemic. So this episode is about common themes, common themes in piano teaching, past and present. As I mentioned at the end of the first episode, these podcasts are about adding tools to our toolkit as teachers, ways to help inspire our students and help them improve and make progress. I find it fascinating when you study the literature about piano teaching, literature written over the centuries, there are common themes that occur over and over. I believe that the reason there are so many common themes is that even though the world has changed so much in the piano teaching profession, there are many things that have not changed because even though we live and work in the 21st century, modern day piano teaching is based on the traditions and practices established in the 19th century. Reminds me of a quote from Wilhelm Bachhaus, who was one of the greatest German pianists of the 20th century, and he said, Furthermore, the means which have produced the great pianists of the past are likely to differ but little from those which will produce the pianists of the future. If a child wishes to play the piano, just like a host of other activities in sports, dance, etc., there are certain skills that have to be taught and have to be practiced and learned. There are basic foundational skills and then a progression of skills with increased difficulty and complexity. In our modern high-tech world, I do not believe that there is suddenly a new magical formula for learning to play the piano. So, therefore, what famous teachers and performers have said in the past, I believe, can be very applicable to our work today. I've often told my students that even though we live in a seemingly instant age, Preparing music requires pretty much the same type of activity and practice as it did a hundred years ago. Yes, we have amazing resources available to us today, thanks to teaching materials, technology, absolutely. But the process of learning the music hasn't changed much. We learn by practicing, we learn through repetition. We learn through practice techniques that have been tested and proven for generations. So at the outset, as modern-day piano teachers, I think it's important to revisit the statement by Wilhelm Bachhaus, and to revisit that statement from time to time, because piano teaching is largely built upon traditions established a long time ago. So then what are some of the common themes in piano teaching, and how can these ideas help the piano teachers of today? If there's one topic, one theme with enough material to fill an entire library, that would be technique, piano technique. The amount of material is enormous, sometimes confusing, even controversial. The number of books, articles, methods, collections of studies and exercises, overwhelming. So where do we start? Well, for me, I think an important place to start is looking at the origins of the word technique. And the word can be traced back to Greek and Latin, meaning art. Now the interesting thing about piano teaching is that over time we have used the word technique in a much more specific way, often referring to scales, arpeggios, chords, other exercises we practice and learn apart from the music. 
particularly if our teaching involves preparing students for examinations where there are specific technical requirements for each grade level. So over time, we have put technique into a separate compartment from the pieces we are studying. So let's examine what some famous performers and teachers have said about technique. Well, let's go back approximately 370 years to C.P.E. Bach, one of the most famous sons of the great Johann Sebastian Bach. C.P.E. Bach wrote a book, which is actually entitled Essay on the True Art of Playing Keyboard Instruments. It was published in 1753. Let me quote him. He says, Keyboardists whose chief asset is mere technique are clearly at a disadvantage. One meets technicians, nimble keyboardists by profession, who possess all of these qualifications and indeed astound us with their prowess without ever touching our sensibilities. As I said, published in 1753. Now, traditionally, when we think about the history of modern piano technique, we focus on the 19th century as the beginning of the period that's sometimes called the golden age of the piano, an era that saw the rise of the concert pianist, the solo recital, the great virtuoso performers, you know, people like Franz Liszt and Clara Schumann, who were the first to memorize music for public performance, the countless methods, books of exercises and studies. I mentioned Franz Liszt. You know, the young Franz Liszt, as a teenager, a young adult, was totally obsessed with pushing piano to the limits. All of this coincided with mechanical improvements being made to the instrument, the invention of the upright piano, the rise of the middle class, more people wanting to take lessons the establishment of the great conservatories, etc. Yes, this is all true about the 19th century. There was an explosion of activity related to the piano, to piano playing, piano performance, and piano teaching. However, however, C.P.E. Bach, one of the greatest musicians of the 18th century, as I said, published his essay. It was three years before the birth of Mozart, 17 years before Beethoven was born almost 60 years before the birth of Liszt, Chopin, Schumann, those famous people associated with the golden age of the piano. Furthermore, the piano, or pianoforte as it was called back in C.P.E. Bach's time, was only a little over 40 years old and very much in the early stages of development. Yet, C.P.E. Bach is noticing a trend developing. He is telling us that there were keyboard artists who had plenty of technique but not much else to offer as artists that would move us with their performances. So long before the golden age of the piano, C.P.E. Bach is noticing trends developing in keyboard playing that require the attention of teachers. So this issue has been around for a long time. Now let's move from C.P.E. Bach in 1753 to Boris Berman, who was a fine pianist and professor at Yale University School of Music. So in the 21st century, in his book, Notes from a Pianist Bench, he writes, Important as the technical work is, it should never be done without a musical goal in mind. Realizing the musical content of the passage helps the pianist find the right technical approach. So here the idea is that technique is strongly connected to the artistic demands of the music. Rosina Levine was one of the most beloved piano teachers of the 20th century. Her studio included a long list of impressive performers, like Van Cliburn, for example. And she said, 
As students in Russia, we were taught from the earliest age to strive for the perfect technique. In other words, a complete command of the instrument. But technique was never a goal in itself. Rather, it was only a means to express the ideas of the composer. So in this quote, it's the same idea, the technique serves the music. If I had to choose my top 10 pianists of all time, Alicia de la Rocha would most definitely be in the top five, one of the greatest artists ever. Listen to what she said about piano technique. She said, and I quote, Beyond the mere mechanics, you have the real meaning of technique. It is sound, interpretation, tone, and musical line. It is phrasing, accent, melody, and musical conception. In general, technique in the mechanical sense will do nothing for you. So on the subject of piano technique, I've given you just four quotes about technique from 1753 to the 21st century. There are many, many other quotes expressing the same ideas. So let's go back to Alicia de la Roche's definition. The real meaning of technique, she says, it is sound, interpretation, tone, and musical line. It is phrasing, accent, melody, and musical conception. So what if, as a starting point, what if we applied these ideas to scales, arpeggios, chords, exercises, for example? What we traditionally teach our students as technique. What if we were teaching our students to listen to their sound, shape their sound, make the technical work sound artistic? With a young child, for example, this could start with something as simple as a crescendo on an ascending octave scale with the right hand and a diminuendo while descending. Or a one octave scale, hand separately, pianissimo with a gentle finger action, then slightly increase the finger action. Listen, compare the sound, compare how it feels to play each one. You could use different articulations, stately dotted rhythms, etc. Or have the student decide what sound they want before they play it. Get the mind involved. Start planting the seeds for the students to develop good listening skills, a sense of touch, and the process of making artistic choices and decisions. For example, one I always liked doing with my students when playing scales hands together was to simply play one hand louder than the other and then switch. This I found especially important with younger students as method series and elementary repertoire can sometimes be what I call right hand dominant. The right hand has the difficult stuff and over time the students start to tune out the left hand and only listen to the right hand. I've noticed in examinations and music festivals you watch the student play and they're actually looking at the right hand for the whole thing and barely looking at the left hand. So the left hand becomes a reflex that gets the job done but doesn't really get a whole lot of musical attention. Something as simple as left hand louder than the right draws the student's attention and their ear to the left hand and can help set them on a path of transforming and enriching their sound. There's an entire area of sounds available below middle C that need equal attention. So by doing all of these things, we're using the ear, the brain, and the sense of touch. All of these components that must work together to achieve expressive artistic playing. Chopin was a very successful teacher in Paris for many years. He insisted that technical exercises should never be merely mechanical, but should engage the mind and the ear at all times. So that's a starting point for what we traditionally call technique, but I believe that scales, arpeggios, chords, exercises, studies, 
are really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to technique. We need to think more broadly. We need a broader concept, one that embraces not only the elements of Alicia de la Rocha's definition, but one of my favorite words in piano playing, and that is choreography. Many years ago in a music festival, I heard a group of 15-year-olds performing their own choice of a nocturne by Chopin. There were about 12 students in the class. The majority of them had chosen the famous nocturne in E-flat, opus 9, number 2. As each student played, I found myself writing the same comments about controlling and shaping the sound, listening for balance, making the left hand sound expressive, the use of rubato, etc. Until one girl walked to the piano and proceeded to give an absolutely outstanding performance of the nocturne. It was as if the piano was an extension of herself. She played with so much physical control, elegance, artistry, it was quite remarkable to hear and also to watch her. After the class, I spoke with this student. She informed me that she had studied dance very seriously for many years, hoping to pursue a career as a professional dancer. Sadly, an accident and a very serious injury meant she had to stop dance lessons. But her second love was playing the piano. What was remarkable was how she had transferred what she had learned in dance about body movement and control, about choreography, how she had transferred this knowledge and these skills to the piano. It was clear as you watched and listened to her playing that this student had developed a much different approach than the other students. Because playing the piano is a complex physical activity with so many parts of the body having to work together to cooperate in order to breathe life into the music. There's the entire playing mechanism, which is so complex, the brain, the eyes, the ears. There's a wide range of physical movements, gestures, essential to artistically communicate the music. In many instances, it's just a matter of recognizing what is in the written score. For example, when a student sees a two-note slur, student understands that there is a physical process involved here in order to achieve the musical effect, a process of dropping into the first note gently transferring the weight to the second note and lifting off the second note with the second note of the slur being softer than the first. It is a complex physical process, but the visual cue is the simple two-note slur on the score. So these indications in the musical notation, our students learn these as they progress. Our goal is to get them to the point where they're able to translate the notation into the physical movements needed. But then the more challenging is what is not written in the music. So, for example, many waltzes have long sections where the left hand has a bass quarter note followed by quarter note chords on beats two and three. So you have this recurring pattern of bass, chord, chord, bass, chord, chord. It's the left hand pattern that is essential for creating the foundation or the feeling of the waltz. So you want a slight emphasis on the downbeat, less on beats two and three, so that the sound and the feeling of the three beats in the left hand is actually quite different. Requires also a smooth left hand movement from the bass note to the chords, forming the shape of the chord on the way up from the bass note to ensure smoothness and control of the sound. So smooth back and forth movements and different amounts of weight on the notes. This isn't written in the score, but nevertheless is very important choreography required to play the left-hand waltz accompaniment artistically. In my pedagogy course, one of the assignments I give is called a gesture analysis assignment. 
So each student in the class is given a different intermediate level piece and asked to do a detailed analysis from a gestural perspective to dissect the piece, I mean really dissect it, and understand all of the physical movements required to play the piece artistically. This I have found is a useful way for the pedagogy student to gain a clear and comprehensive understanding of the demands of the piece and also to develop their diagnostic skills as teachers to better be able to anticipate, notice, and address the problems an intermediate student might have. So the musical score represents the composer's inspiration and to recreate the composer's inspiration requires a wide range of physical movements and gestures. This is a complex visual, mental, oral, and physical process, but an essential process in the art and technique of performance. Thinking about all of this reminds me of one of my teachers, Canadian pianist Ronald Torini. Many years ago, he auditioned for the legendary Isabel Vengerova, who was known for being, shall we say, a very demanding teacher. For his audition, he played some Beethoven. When he finished, she looked at him and said, My dear, you know how to read notes but you don't know how to read music. He was quite shocked as he was in his 20s, but it was her very direct and cutting way of informing him that important details in the score were not being brought out in his performance. So even though there are specific, what we call technical requirements in the work and the teaching we do, let's not forget the broader definition of the word and its origins. Technique equals art. Art at the keyboard requires mastering many types of movements and choreography. Another one of my teachers, Cécile Lucet, was about 10 years old when she went to the Paris Conservatory to study with Marcel Champy. Cécile told me that often one-third to one-half of her lesson were spent away from the piano, practicing the movements needed for piano playing, away from the piano, working the various movements of the fingers and thumbs and wrists and forearms and arms, etc., so technique is a big picture artistic term with many, many components. Another common theme in the literature relates to sound. So much has been written about sound, color, tone color, however you want to describe it. The capabilities of the piano in this era, in this area. In episode one, I mentioned the philosophy and approach of Heinrich Neuhaus, a professor at the Moscow Conservatory for over 40 years. And he says, at least twice a week, I remind my pupils, because I have to, of Anton Rubinstein's saying, which I mentioned earlier. You think the piano is one instrument? It is a hundred instruments. Our professional lives center around sound. As musicians and piano teachers, sound is the basic raw material that we work with every day with every student. And that sound appears in the form of melody, rhythm, accompaniment, harmony, counterpoint, dynamic levels, articulation, and so on. It was in the 19th century, the golden age of the piano, that the piano was first described as the household orchestra. It was given this description not just because pianists can play many notes at the same time, but because the range of sounds that can be created, the sounds, the colors, is really quite remarkable. And I believe that as early as possible, we should try to awaken and develop in the child an awareness of these possibilities. For example, a simple exercise with a child is to see how many shades of sound the child can create on one note. Take middle C, hands separately. 
In our lessons, how much time do we spend working on sound, on color? You can experiment with the student. Try something. Try a different approach, a different touch, so that the students notice, hear, and feel the difference. This requires concentrated listening and can start early in the student's training. I also feel that this can make the lessons more interesting and engaging for the students and the teacher. As I said before, having a student think about and describe the sound they want before they play it so that the mind, the brain is involved and the students are learning to make conscious artistic decisions and develop their artistic mind. Have the students record themselves and listen. The number of times I've recorded my students over the years and how su surprised they are when they listen because, for example, they may have thought they were creating a lot of dynamic contrast and color when in fact they're not. And so many of our students nowadays have smartphones. These have excellent recording capabilities. One of the best ways to open our students' ears, to have that kind of critical listening to what they're doing. During the pandemic, several of my colleagues who could not teach their students in person have had a requirement that the students submit a video recording to them probably once a week. And they're all saying that the students have learned so much by doing this. And as I've said, I believe that even young children can develop this sense of sound and color. Claude Debussy was not only one of the greatest composers who ever lived, but was also a fine pianist. Those who heard him play were amazed at the incredible tone colors he created. Well, one of my favorite stories has to do with the French pianist Alfred Cortot. So after Debussy died in 1918, Alfred Cortot went to visit Debussy's widow, Emma Bardak, and the daughter, Emily, and Emily's nickname was Shushu. So while there, Courtois went to the piano and played some of Debussy's music. When he finished, Emma Bardak was weeping. She was deeply moved hearing her husband's music. But the little girl was on the floor playing as if she hadn't even noticed. So Alfred Courtois asked her, do you know what I just played? Young Emily said, yes. And Courtois asked, did you like it? Emily said, no. And Courtois asked, why not? And get this, Debussy's 10-year-old daughter looked at Courtois and said, when my father played, he listened more. So Courtois went on to say that one of the best piano lessons he had ever had was from a 10-year-old child. Yes, a child can tell the difference. Yes, the piano can create many sounds, colors. It is one of the most wonderful things about the instrument. I remember the day when I was 17 that I purchased my first recording of Vladimir Horowitz. I had recently heard about him from my teacher, but I had never heard Horowitz play. It was the RCA recording Homage to Liszt. As I played it, I listened in disbelief. I had no idea that the piano or a human being was capable of doing that. The sounds, the command of the piano, the virtuosity, the electricity of the performances, all of these things were overwhelming. I have never forgotten that moment of hearing Vladimir Horowitz for the first time. There are some teachers and performers who have felt so strongly about sound as the defining quality of an artist that as far as they're concerned, everything comes down to sound. So I'm reminded of the statement by Cecile Genhart, who was a wonderful teacher. She taught at the Eastman School of Music for many years. And her quote is, never believe anything until you hear how it sounds. Well, let's look at some other comments on the subject of sound. 
One of my favorite is from an interview with the British pianist Harold Bauer, who reminds us, and I quote, The Italians do not say, I play the piano, but rather, I sound the piano. Suono il pianoforte. If we had a little more sounding of the piano, that is producing real musical effects and a little less playing on the ivory keys, the playing of our students would be more interesting. That's fascinating and it's interesting that in, in another language, the actual term is, I sound the piano. And another one, Vasily Safanov was a teacher in Moscow. He was director of the Moscow Conservatory for several years before he eventually moved to the United States. He was Rosina Levine's teacher. And he once said, the less the piano sounds like itself under a performer's fingers, the better it is. And related to sound throughout the literature about piano teaching, there's also a great deal of emphasis on the idea of making the piano sing develop a singing tone. Frédéric Chopin was one of the very few composers who composed almost exclusively for the piano. He lived his life through the piano and his music. In the letter to a friend, he once said, I often tell the piano what I want to tell you. Well, Chopin, as I said, spent many years teaching in Paris and was a very effective teacher. He often said, Il faut chanter avec les doigts. You must sing with the fingers. One of his students described his playing, and I quote, Chopin played me four nocturnes I had not heard before. What enchantment. It was unbelievably beautiful. His playing is entirely based on the vocal style. Chopin says so himself. Back to Safanov, he says, at all times when practicing, even the driest exercise, never forget to control the beauty of the sound. If you hit the piano, it will scream. So here's a comment that's not only about sound, but related to what I talked about earlier in this podcast, technique as art. But making the piano sing requires deep listening. Joseph Levine, Rosina Levine's husband, also a teacher, fine pianist, he said once, most students hear, but they do not listen. The finest students are those who have learned to listen. And like Levine says, listening is the key. Because in order to make the piano sing, the challenge we have as pianists and teachers is the fact that, number one, the instant we play a note on the piano, the sound starts to diminish. There's nothing we can do about it. Unlike wind, brass, stringed instruments, or the human voice, pianists cannot crescendo on a note. So, therefore, it's especially important that we teach our students to listen to their sound, not just the sound that happens the instant they play the note, but the entire duration of the note. As the late Dr. Nalita True would say, listening through the sound. I love that expression, listen through your sound. It's vitally important. It's important for making the piano sing, for creating beautiful legato and tone. You know, with a young child, you could play a note and listen to it as the sound fades and have the child release the key when they can no longer hear the tone. Or short exercises like playing three or four notes in a row, starting with a strong tone on the first note and then matching the sound of the next note with the diminished level of the previous note and so on. So in order to create a range of sounds and a singing tone, one has to listen. 
and much has been said about the art of listening throughout the ages. It's so easy when playing the piano, operating this external musical instrument to turn off the ears and to go on autopilot, to stare out the window or daydream while practicing. This can easily happen with practicing sections repeatedly, what I call mindless repetition, or scales, etc., where there are recurring memorized patterns. So, for example, as students become more familiar with scales, arpeggios, chords, the patterns, the fingerings, they will go on autopilot, not listening. I can think of several students I've had at the university level who decided after entering university that they would complete all of the grade 10 requirements and then the ARCT before graduating from university. So they started practicing technical requirements much more than they had previously. As they continued, I noticed that their sound was changing and not for the better. They were practicing on autopilot and not listening to the quality of their sound, and this was gradually spilling over into their memorized repertoire. As human beings, we develop habits, and these can be sometimes hard to break, but when we try to break habits, we have to do it consciously and with very definite approaches. So keeping the ear engaged is essential. Our students come to their lesson in the midst of their busy lives, often with many other activities each week, growing up in busy homes. We often begin the lesson with a technical warm-up. Perhaps we should spend time at the beginning of each lesson warming up their ears. The art of listening at the beginning of each lesson. So, realizing the importance of our work, the demands of teaching, remember to also think about technique in big picture artistic terms. Take one of the pieces you are teaching or about to teach and do a gesture analysis of it. Work with students to open their ears to the many sounds, sonorities possible on this magnificent instrument and help them develop the art of listening. Listening to the quality of their sound, listening through their sound. These, I believe, are very important steps in helping students develop a personal connection with the instrument and the music they are studying, to heighten their senses when practicing, to make their daily time at the piano productive and engaging, and therefore the days between lessons much more productive, and also to move toward developing an individual artistic voice, thinking about what they are playing and making decisions. Because I believe teaching is much more than telling. It is interacting with and engaging the student, understanding the student's perspective, and helping the student make that connection with music and the instrument, a connection that will last a lifetime regardless of where life takes them. So, in our next episode, available on March 15th, I will conclude the topic of common themes in piano teaching. And I leave you now with the conclusion of Beethoven's wonderful sonata movement. If you would like to learn more about my work or hear more of my recordings, please visit my website at edmundaw.com. I thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. Bye for now.